Welcome to episode 26 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024. Security Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Focusing on the news now, and the British Security Industry Association has elected popular broadcaster and campaigner Nick Ross, CBE, to serve as the Trade Association's new president. Ross replaces Sir Keith Povey, QPM, who retires as BSIA president after 14 years in the role. Ross assumed the post of president on Wednesday the 19th of April at the Trade Association's annual general meeting in central London. Going forward, his primary goal will be to continue the work focused on developing the relationship between the police service and the private security industry. Starting out as a junior reporter while still at university, Ross covered the troubles in Northern Ireland for the BBC and then moved on to host programmes including Radio 4's The World at One and also The World Tonight. He became a TV reporter, documentary director and political correspondent and also chaired live debates, but was perhaps best known for the crime appeals programme Crime Watch, which he presented for over two decades. Ross conceived the new discipline of crime science, which focuses on practical, multidisciplinary and outcomes-focused approaches to crime reduction. He also founded the Jill Dando Institute of Security and Crime Science at University College London, which has since grown into one of the largest academic crime prevention departments in the world. Through time, Ross has served on several government-centred crime prevention committees, as well as offering advice to victim support and the National Police Chiefs Council. He has been involved with several other community safety initiatives, notably so ones focused on road accident reduction and fire safety, and also harbours a long-standing interest in healthcare and the public understanding of science. Simon Banks, chair of the BSIA, observed, It's an honour to welcome Nick as our new president. His experience in law enforcement and the security sector will deliver tangible benefits for BSIA member companies. We must see the police service and the private security industry working in tandem alongside the deployment of the latest technology, while at the same time sharing event intelligence to increase public safety. On his new appointment, Ross noted, Crime is a measure of society's well-being and the UK does not have a good enough record, being placed midway down the league table for industrialised nations. We all know prevention Prevention is better than cure, while it's also true to say that learning is better than blame. Crime reduction requires industry to take responsibility for making its services and products safe, as well as fashion an ever closer relationship between the private sector and the police service. Ross went on to conclude, The BSIA is a key player. The Trade Association represents the often undervalued army of informal guardians and sometimes brilliant innovators who help to make our world a safer place. I very much hope that the next few years will see a growing alliance between technologists, the police service and the private sector to help communities be more at ease with themselves and also drive improvements on the UK's record of crime reduction. The countdown has begun in relation to a new regime designed to set the minimum security standards for all consumer products with internet connectivity. That regime will come into effect in less than 12 months, thereby rendering the UK the first country in the world to introduce such protections. The all-new Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Act will come into force on the 29th of April next year, at which point consumers and businesses alike will benefit from world-first protections against potentially insecure technology. The telecoms and technology industries, and those manufacturers resident within, must now prepare for the implementation. Measures outlined include requirements for manufacturers to implement minimum security standards on all consumer products with internet connectivity, among them smartphones, smart speakers, games consoles and smart doorbells, before they can be made available for purchase. 
In bringing forward this new regime, the UK becomes the first nation to require minimum protections for consumers and businesses alike, using these devices in the face of cybersecurity risks. Interestingly, this new regime has only been made possible by the freedoms gained through Brexit, which grants the government the ability to implement sector-specific regulations. This new regime will help deliver on one of the government's five stated priorities to grow the economy by increasing consumer confidence and protections in the products those consumers buy and use. Viscount Camrose, the Minister for Artificial Intelligence and Intellectual Property, said, These new regulations coming into force next April will transform how we protect and secure consumer devices with an internet or network connection. When this regime comes into force, every household and business in the UK buying a new connectable product will benefit from increased protections. Viscount Camrose continued, We've laid the foundations for a new system to protect our consumers and businesses while also supporting technological innovation. We will now work closely with industry over the next 12 months as we prepare for its implementation. The new measures will introduce a series of improved security protections to tackle the threat of cybercrime. These will include the banning of universal default and easily guessable default passwords on consumer connectable products, increased manufacturer transparency on how long products will continue to receive security updates, which will provide standardised security information to better inform consumer purchasing decisions, manufacturers being required to make customers aware of a product security update support period before allowing product purchases on the manufacturer's website, and device manufacturers being required to publish contact information, in turn allowing vulnerabilities relating to their devices to be reported. Lindy Cameron, CEO of the National Cybersecurity Centre, commented, The National Cybersecurity Centre welcomes these new standards, which will place security at the very heart of technology design and ensure the connected devices that consumers rely on each day are secure from the outset. Further, Cameron noted, Up until now, there has been an unreasonable expectation for ordinary users to shoulder the burden of cyber risk. The National Cybersecurity Centre will continue to support manufacturers in implementing the necessary changes. When in full effect, the new regime will result in visible changes for consumers as they move through the purchasing process, with new information on security updates and support periods being available to inform purchasing decisions. If a product is being purchased directly from a manufacturer's website, the measures will require its support period to be clearly advertised alongside the usual product specifications. Further, the government is engaging with online marketplaces in preparation for the changes, exploring how they can work to complement these changes and further protect consumers. Our first guest on episode 26 of the Security Matters podcast is Peter French, the Managing Director of SSR Personnel and Executive Profiles. SSR Personnel provides specialist recruitment and selection services to a majority of the top 500 UK and European companies and enjoys an enviable reputation in the supply of recruitment and staffing solutions. Peter founded the business back in 1986. In addition to the day job, he also holds a number of non-executive posts advising on human resources planning, motivation and psychometrics. A past master and trustee of the Worshipful Company of Security Professionals, Peter is an MBE, a certified protection professional and also a fellow of the Security Institute. Recently, I interviewed Peter, who first appeared as a guest on episode 12 of the Security Matters podcast, about skills progression in the sector, views relating to the security profession, key priorities for chief security officers and also the impact of artificial intelligence. Peter, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to be our guest once again on the Security Matters podcast. Uh, first of all, what do you think the profession of security will look like in, say, five to ten years' time? That's a very good question. And I think the real issue for me is that ten-year environment, I don't think anyone's really got a handle on it. I think after the you know, pandemic, the the way that we've brought technology into the world of you know the professional security person and, and the function of security. We are looking to understand where other sectors are going and we're looking to mimic some of those and then we're looking to lead. What I see now is a really 
sort of shortened period. And I think within the next five years and then the next 10 years, some of the smaller things. So giving an example of that, I suppose, would be manufacturing cars through 3D printing. That doesn't matter initially to the security professionals, but if you then upgrade it from you know, cars and guns and various other bits and pieces, um, you can see that you can start to have a manufacturing environment, which whilst it might be a large garage, you could actually put half a dozen printers in and be printing anything you want. Where does security come into that? Well, all the aspects of the things you don't want people to individually manufacture. And I think that to me is is a sort of a quite a turning point within the next five years that the security professional will have to understand what can and cannot be done. Then we move into areas like the metaverse, which I think is going to still be in its infancy. I mean, it's only turning over, according to statistics I was reading just the other day, $490 billion. This is something that started from scratch with Facebook perhaps spending, I don't know, $100 billion and getting $20 billion back. But now the numbers are just incredible. And and nobody really makes anything in the metaverse yet because the big areas that we're going to see are more gaming, education, development of ideas, collaborative working. So all of those things are going to be what we're going to see in the metaverse. But the security professional is not in there at the moment because the only thing that's being prosecuted is IP infringement. So they're the only um, legal action, civil actions that have actually taken place. But in the metaverse of tomorrow, where you're actually buying, selling articles, where, where you've got gaming, where you've got the fraudsters moving in, that's where, the again, the security professional is going to be involved. And I don't know anyone, apart from the odd lawyer, that's actually versed in that environment at all. And I see that as a great challenge for the for people of tomorrow to get their, their arms around such a, a beast when it's going to have such a commercial impact. And, and also to bear in mind that 30% of all the jobs of tomorrow, we don't even know what they are. And why would we say that? Because Goldman Sachs have come out of nowhere saying around AI, we're going to lose 300 million jobs. But actually, people said that when the typewriter came out, because they said all those people that handwrite things won't be needed. And then, of course, the word processor came out and all the people that type and they won't need those. And we ended up with more people for every typewriter, every word processor, every time that technology is actually clicked up. So I don't see that we're going to lose any jobs with new innovation. We're actually going to create more things and we're going to create a better uptrained workforce. So that's what I see the sort of five to 10 year period looking like for the security profession. And in terms of individuals on the front line of security delivery, Peter, how do you think they're going to look to progress their skills in line with the greater technology interaction that's going to be demanded of them in the future? Well, I think we spoke at a conference, you and I, I think you might have even interviewed me, you, you said something like, you know, we're going to do with, you know, these people, you know, the, that that time we probably sort of just called everyone a guard and then we said well naturally they're not just guarding their security officers they're you know they're talking to people they're interacting with people and at that time i would have said that person is going to be the person with the screwdriver because that is what they're there for you know this advent of people standing on barriers isn't really to stop the person jumping the barrier it's more to help the person who can't get through the barrier so it's that sort of helping part of security so anybody coming into your building doesn't feel lost well you have to do more, more with technology because those guys and girls who are if you can still find somebody at minimum rate who's a, a reasonable security officer is being poached by people to drive home deliveries where they can turn up at a doorstep and say you know this is your delivery help the person certainly if the person's got some sort of assistance required etc so that's what they do and and they're being poached by other environments 
and the only way the world of security is going to keep some of those people, if you like, as part of the reception or part of, um, you know, a sock that's looking after 300 places, or is the face of a hologram sitting in your building so that when you leave at nine o'clock at night, the whole building's been deserted, but there's a hologram sitting there, will take you through the building and keep you safe in yourself until you get through the front door. And what do you believe are the management opportunities available for those practitioners operational in vendor services, Peter? I think it's an exciting time. The SIA to me always made a mistake if it just wanted to uh, license the person sitting at the front door or the the person that's going to be your greeter at nightclub or whatever. They, they saw that because we saw actually security officers as being people that were unregulated. Anyone can get in it and it could be somebody with um, uh, some form of uh, criminal record. But actually, the reason for doing that was to actually upgrade the areas of security provision so that somebody you spoke to could comprehensively talk to you at the same point they could deliver you know safety at a given point and 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 all those people that sit on doors you know i have great respect for because you're dealing in an environment where alcohol drugs or whatever affects and, and unbalances people but when you take it into other environments we need to see better management you know because first we have to decide what is a manager so is a manager somebody who is a former security officer is that person somebody that doesn't mind working longer hours than everybody else is that person the person that will turn up at weekends and is that your definition of a manager or is your definition of a manager someone who manages people psychology of people trains people mentors people delivers exceptional service because they know what exceptional service is and then can also confer with the client and say why are we having all these security officers why can't we put some technology in? now if there's a training course that's delivering that and you know because you're a judge on inspiration in hr you know we have some wonderful companies who are training not just their frontline people but are training their managers as well, giving them scenarios of what you see in this situation, what do you see in that situation? So we know there are companies out there, but they're not always, you know, in the majority. You know, there are some people who maybe just want to provide labour. Well, there's a, there's a role for that because some clients demand that, and that's what the, the, the clients demand. But the clients that I tend to deal with are ones that want a better service. They want to feel that they've got a management structure they can talk to, that can respond to a problem escalate it in the right environments and make sure we can deliver it and and you've got to have a training program that goes around that and i think that's something which yes i and i know at one time we're talking about you know trying to get management training involved but i just think it's too hard and and to be honest with you some clients are so tight they just won't pay the few extra pence to have better quality people around it they won't do it for the person on the front line I don't think they particularly care about the back line and the managing. But if the companies I talk to, the delivery of people delivering the service, that's what matters to them. It matters about keeping people, you know, with their companies for, you know, two, three, five years, whatever. But they know that by doing that, you've got to train people. You've got to give them some form of investment. You know, that could be emotional investment. It can be professional investment. Yeah, you know, just deliver. And, and everybody goes along at the same. Obviously, Every now and again, there's not a train crash, but there's you know a puncher, um, and you and you think, oh well, I won't try that again, or I'd need to do it in a different way. But that's intelligent management, and so you've got to put that down to those backline managers who are looking after the people actually right at the very front of the tree who are delivering for you 
your profit if you're in that vendor market. And I think the SIA could do more to at least insist that companies have that type of training available and development because it's developing people and people want to be developed. You know, there's enough statistics around that show you develop people, you put management into place, you will finally get better service and therefore you, you know, service excellence. It's a very, very sort of, it's a virtuous circle to some degrees. Uh, turning towards the annual salary and security trends surveys produced by SSR personnel, precisely how is the profession of security being viewed at the present time? Internally, the people who are in the sector, probably 50-50 about how am I being valued by my client? And now I'm not talking about the, the employing company. But one of the things that we found within the corporate space, that when we came to areas of have I had a salary increase or, you know, has that been looked at? A majority of people, if we go back sort of three, four years, just pre-pandemic, most people relied upon a company-wide, you know, you will get 4%, 5%, whatever it's going to be, and that's your bonus. We, for the first time, are recording over the last two years, and certainly dramatically this year, that people in security positions, and this is all people, certainly those that are in company, they have been reviewed and given a work-based assessment on the role that they're delivering and the average increase for people in that situation has been more has been around about 9.7 percent so the the range is from that to 15 percent so people have definitely been reviewed on their delivery on the role they're doing and they're being valued far more than people that just had an annual increment and i think that shows that at the level above in the boardroom people are valuing the security professional um, for the role they've done within pandemic and i think talking to more cso's that they're being given the latitude to well this may be a crisis i think that's an issue do you think we should be looking at whatever this is and they're having an intelligent conversation with the individual and they're rewarding the person. So to us, that shows that those in that professional security are being evaluated and revalued at a higher level than they were certainly pre-pandemic. And set against the current backdrop of corporate cost control, Peter, what do you believe are the key priorities for the practicing chief security officer? The savvy chief security officer is definitely an individual who understands the priorities of the business. So that's the first thing. So whether or not that's, you know, going into environments which may be dangerous for your people, people that bring in, you know, tracking and con not control, but tracking of your individuals, even when they're on holiday. We all learned that from tsunami, um, but that's got stronger. Understanding the ESG agenda, because the CSOs are sometimes quite uniquely placed. Most of them have got a, a sustainability agenda. Sustainability in the broader issues of risk, resilience, it can be small things, it can be major parts, but that's what they've got. If they've got health and safety, they've certainly got part of the environmental uh, environmental area, looking at individuals, co-workers, how they're performing in the workplace. So the ESG agenda delivered from the US around activist shareholders are asking the questions, but the real issue is your workers of tomorrow, Y and Gen Z, they want to know these issues. This is not just about the activist shareholder. This is your own people in your business, the ones, the talent of the future, the current talent, they're asking the same questions. So what is our policy around governance? So what have we done in the societal area? What are we doing in the environment? And a really strange one, I'll give you an example of how corporations are bad at, at um, looking at uh, ESG agendas. 
I was talking to somebody the other day who had just been back from Kenya and she was talking to a group of farmers. They'd been asked by a major supermarket, what's what's your environmental footprint look like? They didn't understand what they were talking about, but these are quite savvy. So they decided that they would talk to somebody that maybe knew about it. And so they were talking about their environmental footprint to somebody who was explaining to them why it was necessary for some of these bigger supermarkets. Now, you might think that's a really good idea. And wow, that's going to be you know amazing. But why is a big supermarket saying to a very small farmer, you tell me what it looks like in your environmental footprint? Why is it the supermarket trying to help those suppliers? And that's where I think the security professional can definitely assist in you know, messaging the supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I feel personally that that's what they should be doing. And that's the, the enlightened CSOs I talk to certainly give me the same message. And last but not least, Peter, everyone's talking about artificial intelligence at the moment. That was certainly the case on the show floor at the security event late last month that we attended. In your opinion, does artificial intelligence present a threat or an opportunity? Definitely both. Uh, one of the things why it's a threat is it's not going to be controlled. Our government is not, has not got hold of it, has not put the legislation through. We're talking still about protecting the people, about images and things like that. What you've got to talk about is how you actually leverage um, AI in that learning environment. There is a bit of hope on the horizon. After two years, the European Union will actually put before Parliament, their Parliament, they will put together a new plan, which will be very similar around the GDPR proposals, but this will affect the way that we develop AI. So you may be the person who originated the idea of the platform, but you're going to be held responsible for how it's used by third parties because it's your technology and you have the key to it. So where we have platforms that before GDPR would said, Brian Sims' personal details get out there, why should I worry about it? You will be made to worry about it. You will be fined. So if we look at GDPR, typically 4% of global revenue. So anyone that's in that platform, in that space, I feel very strongly will be having to look at how their technology is being used and, and, and the application around that. AI has got to be good. It's got to be something for the future. I mean, in, in medical senses alone, you know, to be able to read and then intelligently understand cancers, uh, you know, I mean, it's just phenomenal. But like every good idea, you know, there are going to there are going to be environments where you can apply it in a singularly different environment, a different way, and that may not be what you want. I mean, fascinating thing I saw recently: somebody wrote five minutes of script, put it into AI, and said, "Visualize that for me." Everything came back in the visual content on the script that I was reading. Now, that's phenomenal. Do it for bad and you can disinformation spreading across where this growing number of people, Zs and Gens who are coming into the into the workforce, get their news from. You know, they're not switched on to security matters every day. Well, maybe they are, you know. That may be how they take some of their news. But if they take it from feeds which are uncontrolled, I think there is a really sort of significant risk that they are you know, certainly going to get information which is not correct. There's an agenda behind it, but maybe that's and again, that's something we we have to look at. But how you how you spot AI generated made up material, it's going to be a definite challenge for all the platforms which are hosting it. I mean, I was talking to the guys at um, TikTok recently, five and a half trillion items uploaded onto their platform every month. 
how do you find bad actors in that sort of information? How do you find piracy? Tremendously hard job. Probably be out of that five trillion, there may be 100 billion articles that shouldn't be on there. They're either false items or they're, you know, looking at the uh, copyright issues. You know, it's it's a phenomenal environment when you see that that's the type of areas that you're going to have to look at and why many platforms try not to look at it because they know it's a big cost. But that maybe is if we can find them enough, maybe they'll regulate their their environments and platforms better. Returning to the news now, and James Cleverly has announced Anne Keast Butler's appointment to succeed Sir Jeremy Fleming as director of GCHQ. Keast Butler most recently served as Deputy Director General of MI5 and will be the first female to hold the top role at GCHQ. Sir Jeremy Fleming announced his decision to step down back in January after six years in the role. Keast Butler takes up her new post this month following a cross-government recruitment process that was chaired by Cabinet Secretary Simon Case. As Deputy Director General, Keith Butler is responsible for MI5's operational, investigations and protective security work. This has included MI5's and indeed Allies' preparation for and response to Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Keith Butler was Director General for Strategy with responsibility for all of the enabling functions that support MI5's operational activities. Before this, Keith Butler spent two years on secondment to GCHQ as Head of Counterterrorism and Serious Organised Crime, and has also spent part of the last decade on secondment in Whitehall. While there, she helped to launch the National Cybersecurity Programme. During her 30 years in the national security field, Keith Butler has held a number of key operational roles in MI5. Announcing the new appointment, James cleverly explained, Anne Keith Butler has an impressive track record at the heart of the UK's national security network, helping to counter threats posed by terrorists, cybercriminals and malign foreign powers. Anne is the ideal candidate to lead GCHQ and will use her vast experience to help keep members of the British public safe. Sir Tim Barrow, National Security Advisor, noted, I'm glad to welcome Anne Keith Butler's appointment. Anne was the exceptional candidate in a talented field. She brings a wealth of experience from across the national security community to the role, has the vision to take GCHQ into the future, and will ensure that the organisation continues its vital work of protecting the UK. Barrow went on to state, I'm grateful to Jeremy for his service as Director of GCHQ and across a distinguished career in national security. Jeremy's insights and analyses have been hugely valuable through what has been one of the most demanding periods of our recent history. On her new appointment, Anne Keith Butler stated, I'm delighted to be appointed as the 17th Director of GCHQ. GCHQ's mission of keeping the UK safe is every bit as inspiring today as it was when the organisation was founded more than 100 years ago. In the last year, GCHQ has contributed vital intelligence to shape the West's response to the illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine, assisted in disrupting terrorist plots, and worked tirelessly to tackle the ongoing threat of ransomware, the impact of which cost the UK dearly. Keith Butler also said, I was privileged to work in GCHQ a few years ago, so I know that I'm once again joining a world-class team of people from diverse backgrounds with a broad range of skills and who share a singular focus on making our country safer, more secure and more prosperous. I'm passionate about continuing to ensure that GCHQ is an organisation in which everyone can perform to their very best. Further, Keith Butler noted, I'm so grateful for the vision and dedication Sir Jeremy Fleming has shown during his tenure and the ways in which GCHQ has transformed under his leadership. I very much look forward to building on this progress in the months and years to come. Outgoing GCHQ Director Sir Jeremy Fleming concluded, Anne's appointment is fantastic news for the organisation. I've worked with Anne for decades. She's a brilliant choice for the role, with deep experience of intelligence and security in today's technology-driven world. The Business Continuity Institute has just issued its latest report, which explores developments in the area of operational resilience. 
Sponsored by RiskConnect, the BCI's Operational Resilience Report for 2023 outlines the results derived from a global survey of resilience professionals and from various detailed interviews with practitioners working in operational resilience and indeed business continuity. Operational resilience has enjoyed considerable attention of late, in the main driven by various regulators in the finance and banking sectors. That said, the BCI's new report shows significant growth across all industry sectors. More than three quarters, i.e. 76.6% of surveyed organisations report that they have an operational resilience programme in place or are otherwise actively building one. Of these, only 40.6% are banking and finance organisations. When asked about the reasons for the move to operational resilience, the majority of respondents, 87.3% of them in fact, from the banking and finance sector stated that the regulatory requirements are the main motivational factor. When it comes to those representing unregulated organisations, the main reason for implementing operational resilience is for good practice purposes. Operational resilience strategy is being led by senior management in most organisations, with the top three types of executives taking responsibility for operational resilience being the CEO, the executive director and the chief operations officer. Day-to-day responsibility for operational resilience is most often placed with the business continuity manager, followed by the head of resilience or a dedicated operational resilience manager. The report clearly identifies significant differences in opinion among professionals about how operational resilience and business continuity fit together. 42% of respondents stated that business continuity and operational resilience are synonymous within their organisations, while 45.6% suggest that there's an overlap between business continuity and operational resilience, but the differences have not yet been clearly defined. Overall, 66.5% of respondents consider that business continuity is a part of operational resilience. However, 58.3% of respondents outside the banking sector firmly believe that business continuity is all their organisation currently needs. Having operational resilience at the heart of an organisation's culture is essential for ensuring true adherence to best practice, but this is also the foremost challenge identified by respondents. 52.4% of them said that embedding operational resilience into the fabric of the organisation was a major issue, followed closely by not having the headcount and or staff time to implement a realistic policy. Organisations are struggling to attract individuals with the required knowledge or operational resilience experience. These challenges are followed by two tactical issues, understanding, monitoring and managing supply chain risks and also addressing legacy infrastructure. Commenting on the detailed report and its contents, Rachel Elliott, Head of Thought Leadership at the BCI, stated, The survey results clearly show advances made in the uptake of operational resilience around the world. It's interesting to note that it seems to be perceived by many as a form of best practice with which even non-regulated organisations should comply. According to Elliott, the positioning of operational resilience and business continuity remains fluid. On that note, Elliott concluded, The BCI is very much looking forward to facilitating the debate about this and helping to provide the clarity that the profession needs. Our second guest on this edition of the podcast is Mark Horton, Vice President at Bandweaver, the fibre optic sensing solutions developer. Mark boasts more than three decades worth of experience in the security and technology sectors gained across a variety of markets, including Africa, Europe, the Middle East and the Asia Pacific region. Having joined the industry in a technical role, Mark quickly progressed through operational, project management and consultancy positions to focus on business development, strategy and sales. Previously the Global Sales and Marketing Director for a Risk Management Centre PLC, Mark led the sales team on implementing the company's global growth strategy. Prior to this, Mark served as an executive at G4S, where he concentrated on developing the group's regional and global technology strategies. During our conversation, Mark turns his attentions towards fibre optic technology, distributed acoustic sensing systems and perimeter intrusion detection in general.
First of all, Mark, what are the key challenges currently being faced by security consultants and specifiers when it comes to designing perimeter intrusion detection systems? So there's lots of considerations to take into account, and it will very much depend on the site and the level of security required. But typically, when you start with a risk assessment for a perimeter, you'll start with a with a review of the, the current physical structure. Now, is it wall, fence or, or other? Is it fit for purpose? Does it match the threat levels? Um, and if so, how best to protect it? If it's a fence, there's lots of ways that you can have a, a perimeter breach. You have people cutting the fence, climbing it, crawling under it, digging under it. So selecting the most suitable technology uh, that ensures a high probability of detection, but also coupled with low nuisance alarms, it's really important to to retain operator confidence. Technologies um, can be impacted, for example, by line of sight. If you have buildings changing in topology, shrubs, trees and bushes, and that needs to be taken into consideration. Um, Standing water, certain technologies, I'm a big fan of standing water, uh, or other weather conditions, high winds, heavy rain and and the like. So it's very important to be aware of potential sources of nuisance alarms. Others examples would be RFI, EMI interference, small animals that could be entering your site, adjacent roads or or rail track infrastructure. Uh, These all have to be very carefully considered when selecting the appropriate perimeter security technology. And further to that, how can fibre optic technology itself be applied for security applications today? So we use fibre optic technology for a wide range of solutions, including power monitoring, life safety, fire detection, but of course, a number of security applications. So we can monitor, for example, buried power cables, which is preventing um, cable theft. We see a lot of that globally as the cost of um, recycled metals goes up significantly. Uh, We can also protect pipelines from third party interference, uh, theft or damage. Uh, But of course, we also use it to protect perimeters and borders. It offers very high detection levels, excellent nuisance alarm mitigation using advanced AI. Um, And it's suitable for a wide range of sites. Uh, We've used it to protect very small perimeters, such as cell towers, right the way through to large infrastructure projects, such as airports, seaports, oil and gas infrastructures, protecting rail tracks from intrusion and and terrorist attack uh, and other uses. And we can monitor up to 100 kilometres of asset with a single controller. What alternative technologies are available at the moment, Mark, and how does distributed acoustic sensing itself compare as an alternative solution? There's a wide range of technologies which are utilised for perimeter security. Just off the top of my head, you've got microwave detection, active infrared beams, volumetric detection, LIDAR, radar, CCTV with, um, with video analytics, and a few older technologies that you don't see so much perhaps these days. So you see there's a, there's a wide variety of technologies to choose between. Using distributed acoustic fiber optic sensing, there's a number of key advantages. We'll actually be covering them in a, in a great deal of depth on um, our webinar with Security Matters. View that top three main advantages. Firstly, nuisance alarm mitigation, um, which is the ability to split the perimeter into multiple virtual zones. And then we can configure each zone individually for the environmental conditions. So you may have around your perimeter different fence types, which can require different sensitivity settings, perhaps a weld mesh, a palisade or or a chain link. One side may be open to prevailing winds and gets large gusts of wind off of the sea, which can cause issues if your fence isn't particularly well maintained. Uh, You may have one section of your fence line adjacent to a very busy road. Uh, And these are sorts of examples where fiber optic technology excels because you can have those individually programmed and configured. And of course, we deploy highly advanced environmental algorithms to ensure very stable performance in all weather conditions. And we also use advanced machine learning, utilizing AI for for problem sites. Um, So that's the first one, nuisance alarm mitigation. Secondly, location accuracy. 
fibre optic can identify uh, the location of intruder down to just a couple of metres. It's a very, very accurate system. Uh, and it can also automatically trigger the relevant static or, or camera preset, which aids operators in making a very quick real-time decision, uh, ensuring an appropriate bass response to a threat. And, and the third key advantage would be the detection performance. Uh, if, if we talk about a fence-mounted detection system, and we, we can detect all types of perimeter breaches. So someone climbing over the fence, somebody cutting through the fence, lifting up of the bottom of the fence, or, or even digging under it. And that's something a lot of other technologies cannot do. And it should be noted, we also protect walls, and we also offer a buried covert solution for sites that don't have a physical perimeter. And how do the solutions you've outlined compare across their life cycles in terms of cost and maintenance, for example? So we feel the total cost of ownership of a, a fibre optic based sensing solution is much less than alternate technologies. But it's important that all costs are considered both installation, equipment and maintenance. So certainly when you include you know, the various parts, if you look at the fast installation time of a fibre optic based system, you know, it's simply a case of attaching a cable to, to a fence with cable ties or, or, or metal twists. It's very fast to install. We require no power or electrics in the field. So it's a major cost saving compared to other technologies. So there's no groundworks, there's no trenching, ducting, foundations, all civils required. So again, a, a huge cost saving on the installation part. And on the ongoing costs, our sensing cable has a 30 year design lifespan. Now, if you compare that to other technologies, how often would you have to replace camera system, a radar, beams over a 30 year lifespan? Many times with a sensing cable, that one cable will last for 30 years. And our systems need next to no maintenance. So there's a lot of cost savings built in. So, so we feel the total cost of ownership is much less when compared to other technologies. Now, in terms of distributed acoustic sensing, Mark, is it only suited to large scale and high value projects? Yeah, I mean, that's a common misconception that it's only you know, suitable for very high value, high security. Site. It's not. It's used on a wide variety of sites from, from small perimeters of maybe even 10 meters. You know, the sorts of sail towers, small substations, pumping stations, bot valve stations, the, these types of sites. Uh, and, and wellheads is another example. We've done many sites protection. They're very small up through to perhaps medium sized sites, solar farms, data centers, police stations, prisons have all been protected using fiber optic security. But then also through to the, the large scale high security sites, nuclear power plants and transportation infrastructure, airports, seaports, railways, government, military. You know, there's a lot of segments there. Um, it's important that we manufacture a product family, uh, which ensures that we, we do have a suitable solution for any size of site or threat level. And in which sectors are you currently witnessing the demand for perimeter intrusion detection systems increasing? So I've touched on a few of them. We've seen some actually quite huge demand recently for protecting solar farms. I think there's a huge investment globally in, in this sector as everyone moves to carbon neutral green energy. Uh, and we've been really busy over perhaps three continents supporting our clients, protecting a multitude of, of solar farms, which happens to fit in very well with the other solutions we offer to our customers in, in power monitoring and fire detection. So we have a total solution for, for solar farms in, in other sectors, data centers. Again, we're seeing lots of new centers being opened up around the world to cope with increased demands for data and, and, and internet and all these other services and storage and the like. And probably the, the utility and, and telecom sector remains really strong. We, we've seen over 
over in North America that there's been multiple attacks on substations. And you know, typically these are considered to be critical national infrastructure and should be appropriately protected. So again, we're seeing lots of demands from, from around the world to, to protect the power and utility sector as well. So I think they're the, the key sectors. And one final question for you, Mark. Are there any particular geographical regions where bandweaver is seeing demonstrable growth in the market at present? Um, so I think post-COVID, um, demand remains high globally for, for perimeter security. It's very much a growth sector. It's due to double in size, I think, by 2026, looking at the last uh, set of data. So we're seeing some, some good global demand. I think we've seen perhaps increased growth in inquiries from the UK and Europe, where, where many sites have undergone post-pandemic security reviews. Uh, and they're now looking to either invest or, uh, or update existing technology with very much a view to reducing manpower based on some lessons learned during the pandemic. I think Asia has been has been particularly strong for us uh, as a business in, um, again, the data centres and, and the power industry. America uh, remains, both North and South America, remain very buoyant for us. But perhaps with, with Africa uh, and the Middle East uh, leading to, to new inquiries, probably a result of the significant investment we're seeing in infrastructure across these regions. And it's really good to see um, the security market bounce back. Focusing once again on the latest news in the sector, it emerges that GateSafe, the charity which campaigns for improved standards in automated gate safety, is now in the process of launching and promoting a new initiative squarely focused on the important role that design plays in delivering a safe and compliant installation. In the last decade, accidents involving falling gates have far outnumbered those caused by the absence of the relevant recommended safety features. While the need to incorporate the relevant combination of safety mechanisms, i.e. photo cells, light curtains or laser scanners and pressure edges, remains a priority, the charity wants to draw attention to the importance of an intrinsically safe design to mitigate the risk of an accident or even worse. The new campaign is backed by a recent survey which saw as many as 84% of those installers question report that they perceive unsafe design to be the most common cause for automated gate accidents in the last 10 years. Well over 50% of the respondents, 58% of them in fact, reported that the failure to eliminate hinge crushing or lack of finger guards were the most common design flaws witnessed in the field. This was followed by a lack of safeguarding against falling gates, usually as a result of the presence of only two rather than the required three hinges, and the absence of any tether, or in the case of a sliding gate, the absence or lack of appropriate support posts and end stops. The majority of installers advise that upwards of half of all gates that they are called upon to check or maintain could be classed as unsafe by design, with the responsibility for these errors being largely attributed to inappropriately trained installers, architects or specifiers and gate manufacturers. As a direct result, 90% of the installers that took part in the survey agreed there's a requirement for an awareness campaign to educate all those in the automated gate or barrier supply chain in order to understand the vital role that design plays in delivering a safe and compliant installation. The Gate Safety by Design programme will feature activity intended to attract the interest of the wide range of professionals associated with automated gate installation and maintenance. It will include lobbying of gate manufacturers, the development of a dedicated gate safety by design guide, a podcast around the importance of three hinges, and also new information sheets for installers. Commenting on the campaign, GateSafe founder Richard Jackson said, The fundamental principle of creating a safe gate is reliant on understanding the importance of designing safety into the process from the outset. While we have witnessed an improved awareness of the need for photo cells and pressure edges, etc., it's quite clear that not only are there a vast number of unsafe gates still in the field, but there's also a significant proportion of new gates being installed which are not intrinsically safe due to the nature of the design. This campaign is very much dedicated to pushing gate safety by design to the top of the agenda. 
G4S Secure Solutions UK has won a multi-million pound UK government contract to provide front of house and security services at a number of foreign, commonwealth and development office buildings in London and the South East, including its London headquarters at King Charles Street. Crown Commercial Services awarded G4S Secure Solutions UK the two-year contract, which will start on the 1st of June 2023. Members of staff working for the incumbent contract holder will all be offered the opportunity to tupee across to G4S Secure Solutions UK, while any new recruits and those current staff members moving to work for G4S on the contract will be required to be security check cleared. Those who do GP across to G4S Secure Solutions UK will benefit from access to professional development opportunities during their working hours, including webinars, training courses and knowledge sharing sessions for industry leaders via the G4S Academy. Eddie Hurst, Business Development Director for Major Projects at G4S Secure Solutions UK, stated, This is a very significant win for G4S in the UK and an amazing opportunity for us to work on behalf of what is one of the great offices of state. As part of this contract, we will be able to use a number of specialisms as and when the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office requires our assistance. Eddie Hanna, Head of Estate Operations and Chief Engineer for the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, responded, We're very glad to be partnering with G4S for this new contract and very much looking forward to a productive working relationship. In parallel with this news, ExxonMobil, the international oil and gas company, has just awarded Core Security the contract to deliver essential security provisions for the organisation's refinery and chemical plant located on Southampton Water at Forley in Hampshire. First opened in 1951, the location is the largest oil refinery in the UK and one of the most complex refineries in Europe. With the capacity to refine and produce 270,000 barrels of oil per day, Borley provides 20% of the nation's overall refinery capacity. The ExxonMobil chemical plant produces circa 650,000 tonnes of petrochemical products each year. More than 2,500 members of staff, among them 175 qualified chemical engineers and contractors work at the Forley facility, which operates a 700-kilometre fuel distribution pipeline. Indeed, a dedicated jet fuel pipeline runs directly from the Forley facility to Heathrow Airport. The Forley site is regulated under the Control of Major Accident Hazards Regulations 2015, and at all times, the management team works closely with representatives from the Environment Agency and the Health and Safety Executive to maintain safety at the premises. Core Security was successful in the competitive bidding process for the contract, which was based on the stringent ExxonMobil procurement rules. Core Security representatives visited the Forley site to understand the complex nature of the security provisions required. Security is necessarily a key priority. There are physical security measures on site, among them an electrified perimeter fence standing three metres tall and linked to an intruder alarm system. Vehicle barriers are supported by fully staffed gatehouses. The entire complex is monitored by a series of CCTV cameras. Patrols of the entire perimeter zone are conducted on a regular basis, while all vehicles entering the complex are subject to search procedures. Security procedures are regularly tested on site and there's continual contact with the Hampshire and Isle of Wight constabulary. The Forley site is designated part of the nation's critical national infrastructure. On that basis, it was absolutely essential for the appointed security solutions provider to understand the complexities and operational needs of the contract. In practice, the five-year contract will see 46 colleagues transfer to the core security team with immediate effect. Commenting on the award of the contract, Andy Topp, Sales and Marketing Director at Core Security, stated, ExxonMobil has a critical role to play in the national infrastructure of the country. We're very pleased that the customer noticed the efforts of our team to understand the needs of the site. We're delighted to be working with the company and welcome our new colleagues to the team. A spokesperson from ExxonMobil concluded, Core Security was the successful bidder out of the eight security companies invited to tender. We look forward to working with Core Security on ensuring that our site security team colleagues remain motivated and have the very best possible opportunity to progress in their careers. 
Our third and final guest on episode 26 of the Security Matters podcast is David Dunnigan, Managing Director for Chubb Fire and Security in the UK and Ireland. On a day-to-day basis, David is responsible for directing the vision and values of the organisation in order to ensure that Chubb maintains its position as one of the leading fire and security integrators. David joined the business back in 1993 as an apprentice and has since worked across a broad range of areas from engineering and sales right through to sales management and director roles. David harbours extensive knowledge of the Chubb organisation and recognises the importance of harnessing employee skills to serve as a driving force behind delivering exceptional customer service. On this occasion, David answers some key questions on the subject of smart buildings and the various technologies underpinning them, with a particular reference to security regimes. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today, David. Uh, Chubb is, of course, one of the leading providers of security systems. And on that basis, can you provide an overview of the security products and solutions offered by the business? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, So Chubb has a long history of protecting things that matter most. In fact, just a couple of months ago, we actually celebrated our 205th birthday, which is a testament to our ability to evolve and continue to provide exceptional services to our customers. We started out in locks and safes, and and funnily enough, everywhere I go and I say that I work for Chubb, people always recognise us for for locks and safes, uh, even though that's not part of our, our core market anymore. But our core principles of business remain the same, protecting people, places and assets. But as you would imagine, our solutions have evolved over time. As you say, we are one of the leading security providers in the UK, helping to secure our customers' premises and assets with CCTV, intruder alarms and access control. We also have a specialist system designed to protect loan workers, which is our Safe Zone app. All our security solutions and technologies can work in isolation or as part of a larger integrated solution. We can then provide even greater peace of mind to our customers with the Chubb Vision Plus. This suite of remote and connected tools provides 24-7-365 monitoring and valuable data analytics so we can take the right actions at the right time to help protect our customers. Ultimately, we aim to create safe, secure and connected working environments that protect the well-being of everyone. We are at the forefront of innovation and constantly evolve our solutions to provide the very best security. I'm personally really passionate about driving the business forward. And one of the key ways we will do this is by investing in our people to give them the training skills and support they need to provide the very best service to our customers. We've been part of the API group for just over a year now. This creates a new chapter for us. Chubb has entered a new world of opportunity to achieve great things and put people at the heart of everything we do. We recently launched a new vision, mission and values. Our new vision is for Chubb to be the number one trusted partner to protect the world's most valued resources, which are people, property and assets. Most of our existing customers, we've already achieved this position of trusted partner in their hearts and in their minds, but we can never be complacent. We need to continue to serve every customer at the highest level to maintain their deep loyalty to Chubb. Equally, there are thousands of potential customers in the existing markets and new ones who we can serve to the same high standards to achieve the position of trusted partner with them. Now, we've heard a great deal about smart buildings in recent years, David. Speaking from your own perspective, what are some of the key features or elements that make a building smart? Well, smart buildings is a phrase we've been using for a number of years. When you look past the bricks and mortar, there is some really innovative stuff going on inside these types of buildings. And in reality, it's all about connectivity. Using IoT, so Internet of Things enabled devices, sensors and software allow building owners and managers to monitor various building characteristics, analyse data and generate insights around usage patterns. The IoT devices are linked to various systems around the building, such as heating, the air conditioning, lighting, security devices and even elevators now. 
Information is being constantly generated and pulled into a central hub and can be used to optimise the building's environment and operations. In a world before smart buildings, workers would work across a number of floors with lights and heating on all day, sometimes late into the night. Technology has made it possible to programme sensors to detect movement and trigger the lights to come on. After a period of time with no movement, they'll then switch off. This simple action can save hundreds, if not thousands of pounds on electricity each year, which in today's energy crisis has never been more important. So taking that example, these actions can be applied across a range of systems to control temperature, humidity and air quality, or used to understand occupancy level and energy usage. One recent example is a client wanted historic data of building occupancy so they could predict the volume of food and drink quantities on different days of the week for the cafe. This then gave them a benefit of them not buying excessive food, which would then eventually go to waste for them. As I said, it's all about connectivity and gathering data and metrics so business owners and all managers can create comfortable workspaces for their employees, create a safe and secure environment by detecting problems or security risks, but at the same time drive efficiency and get the most out of their building. This then leads to important metrics and goals around reducing carbon footprint and boosting employee well-being. As more and more buildings become smart, David, what potential risks and vulnerabilities must be considered by today's security practitioners? Well, from our point of view here at Chubb, before anything else, a smart building needs to be safe and provide a secure environment for its occupants, whether they are living or working there. That starts with installing the correct fire and security systems for that building particular needs. The traditional security risks, if you like, still remain, which means we need to plan and address things like preventing people from breaking in or guarding against damage or physical theft. But of course, as technology has advanced, risks have become more sophisticated too. The amount of data that a smart building is creating and collecting could be targeted by cyber criminals. If this data is not properly secured, it could compromise the privacy of the occupants. Linked to this, if sensors and devices do not have robust protection, they could be vulnerable to cyber attacks, which can compromise the building's control systems and network. Then there is our dependence on technology. We've become so used to technology enhancing our lives. Quite literally, my smartphone contains pretty much all my personal information, calendar, emails, photos of my family, and all my banking information. Without these things, I'd be completely lost. And that's the same for smart buildings. The reliance on technology creates a single point of failure. If the systems are compromised, the building operations could be severely impacted and could put workers at risk. We should then consider vulnerabilities around maintenance. Smart buildings require ongoing maintenance and updates to ensure they remain secure and function properly. Not regularly maintained systems can lead to security issues and result in many of the things I've mentioned. But that's where Chubb comes in. We are a product agnostic, which means we can work with the very best manufacturers and software providers to help secure a building. We can safeguard systems with our always unconnected systems using Chubb Vision Plus. This means we can monitor individual devices constantly. If part of the system starts to fail, then remote intervention and maintenance can be carried out to isolate or rectify the issue. Given the emergence of 5G network, what new opportunities and challenges are now in play for smart building technology and also what benefits could be realised for building occupants? So there is no doubt that the the introduction of 5G will present a a whole host of new opportunities for smart buildings. 5G offers a faster and more reliable connection, meaning smart buildings can support more IoT devices and handle large amounts of data. This could lead to the implementation of more advanced smart building systems and applications, possibly things like augmented reality and virtual reality. This improved connectivity can enhance real-time monitoring and control of building operations. That means improved energy efficiency, reduced maintenance costs, increased occupant comfort and even better security. 
However, it's worth noting that like with anything, there are always two sides of the coin and there will inevitably be challenges. Some buildings may have to upgrade or reconfigure their infrastructure to achieve and benefit from reliable coverage and then connectivity. That brings with its own cost and time implications. Then there are all of the threats and risks that haven't even been created yet. It's an interesting challenge to think about what could or might happen. One we absolutely relish here at Chubb. We're also helping all our current customers and those who would like to partner with us prepare for and embrace the digital switchover. We've been planning for the switchover from PSTN, the traditional analog phone network, to the new digital IP network for some time. In fact, in February, we even launched a radio campaign to advise businesses about the changes taking place and how it could affect them. As security solution providers, we see advising customers of legislative and other industry updates and supporting them through these periods of change as an important part of our job. What's the role played by emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence and machine learning in the progression of smart building systems, David, and how might they revolutionise the way in which we secure buildings? So the world of artificial intelligence and machine learning is very interesting and very topical. I can't scroll through LinkedIn without seeing something about AI that can write an exercise program for me. I could probably write my own fitness and diet plan, but that's, well, quite boring if I'm honest. But having a piece of software or program do it for me takes away the burden of it. And from my case, I've got something to blame then when it doesn't work. Um, but AI insecurity is a lot like that too. It can take away repetitive tasks and remove the burden from humans. In doing so, it eliminates human errors and makes the process more efficient and reliable. AI-powered CCTV cameras are smart enough to distinguish between the movement of animals or trees and a potential intruder, which saves security personnel wasting their time investigating activity from animals. Access control is another system that can be improved thanks to AI. Systems can be installed with an anti-tailgating or anti-passback facility, which ensures that only one authorised person enters or exits the room or area. Then there are biometric scanners, which are just getting smarter and smarter. As a forward-thinking organisation and a leader in security, we've been harnessing the power for some time. We are currently developing a, a video management system that integrates a building security devices into one single platform. For instance, if you have a, an automated number plate recognition system, AMPR, at the entrance of your car park, it can open up for employees or registered guests, meaning only authorised people can park. As well as AMPR, we can then link facial recognition, which can be integrated so the driver and passenger can also be identified to that. With our new VMS, you can take the facial recognition plugin and place it on the same platform as your AMPR plugin. By adding multiple plugins and layers of intelligence and contextualizing them, you enrich your data and provide greater insight and enhance security. The exciting thing about AI is that it's constantly learning. Any system that integrates machine learning technology can analyze data from various sources, such as security cameras, access control systems, and network logs to monitor behavioral activity and detect suspicious behavior. The technology can detect changes in an employee's routine, which could, for example, indicate a potential security breach or an attempt to steal sensitive information. Over time, a building system will have analyzed enormous amounts of data and can learn from past incidents to improve its threat detection capabilities, providing even greater security. It'll be interesting to see how far AI technology can take security in the years to come. And finally, David, are there any emerging technologies being examined to improve physical security in smart buildings? And if so, what are they and how do they work in practice? 
Yeah, of course. As I mentioned, we're one of the industry leaders, as well as our new VMS. Just last year, we collaborated with Airbox Systems, a provider of asset tracking solutions for frontline professionals to integrate situational awareness tools with our security solutions. The collaboration integrates our access management system, ADAX, with Airbox command and control software to create a real-time situational awareness system. This technology provides a live CCTV feed via a secured network or even building schematics directly to frontline field professionals, including military, law enforcement, special forces, fire, and emergency services who support air and ground operations. We we primarily use ADAX in high-risk sites, but we're seeing more and more need for the wider adoption of this tool in high-rise buildings to give an even greater level of protection to people, as the real-time data is immediately presented to emergency service personnel who are likely to be the first responders. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Peter French from SSR Personnel and Executive Profiles, Mark Horton of Bandweaver, and also David Dunnigan from Chubb for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsor, The Security Event. The Security Event runs from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.securitymattersmagazine.com where you can access all of our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can view our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our very popular weekly e-news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming editions of the podcast. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters and access our LinkedIn page at Security Matters Magazine and website. Please do like and share the podcast content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.